All right, I'm going to uh, preface preface tonight by saying that I have a cold and I'm under the weather and Geneva will tell you that when I have a cold, I'm a big baby and it is very true. <laughs> I would rather have a broken leg or something like that than have a cold. Nevertheless, I will persevere. All that to say, uh, we're going to be very short and sweet tonight, I hope. So, <coughs> excuse me. All right. So, I'm going to start off with a question. Does anybody know, besides Geneva, because I already told her, what the earliest benediction in the Bible is? The earliest benediction. Elizabeth looks like she knows. <laughs> it is Job 121. Mm-hmm. It says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job had just suffered the loss of all of his worldly goods and his children when he uttered those words. But he chose to bless the name of the Lord. He spoke well of God, or he spoke good things about God, because he recognized that all he had had come from God's hand, and that God had the right to give and take it, take it away as he saw fit. So it's an important lesson for us to learn, uh, and I think a mark of spiritual maturity, when we recognize that the Lord is the one who gives and, and takes away, and that he is worthy of praise for that because of his sovereign will. But although that is the earliest benediction in time in Scripture, it's not the first recorded benediction in Scripture. That one is found in Genesis. So Sandra, you, you are on the right track there. The first one recorded is in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And that says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. I don't think it's an accident that the, that is the first recorded benediction. Um, and that it's directed towards God for his deliverance. Abram was blessed because he belonged to God Most High, and God Most High was blessed because he delivered the one who belonged to him. And that theme, the theme that God is worthy of praise and God is worthy of blessing because he saves his people, is repeated over and over in the Old Testament. So there are many passages that bless the Lord's name and offer praise to him because of creation or because he answers the prayer of his people uh, for something they desire. So you can think of like Hannah for example, or Ruth and Naomi. Um, but most often, it is because of his salvation that he has offered praise and glory. So, for example, Exodus 15 begins, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Judges 5 records the song of praise offered to the Lord by Deborah and Barak when he saved them from the oppression of Sisera and Jabin of Canaan. It says, I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. And the Psalms, of course, are overflowing with songs of praise to the Lord for his deliverance. I'm sure when it comes to the Psalms, you all have your own favorite that comes to your mind. But I'm going to read one of mine, which is Psalm 34. Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days, that he may say, see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. The psalm, as I said, the psalms are filled with praises like that to the Lord for his deliverance. And then when you move to the prophets, um, even in the in those books, the, the future nation of Israel that will be saved is called to praise the Lord because of his salvation. So knowing that about the Old Testament, when we move to the New Testament, it should be no surprise that it is also filled with praise to the Lord for his salvation. There are many places where we are commanded or encouraged to give glory to God because of his work of salvation. Elizabeth showed us some of these last fall. Um, I know there's Galatians and then Timothy. I'm totally blanking on the last one. Hebrews. Hebrews. Okay. <laughs> um, so those are just three places. And there are three more that we're going to be looking over uh, over the next couple months. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at Romans 16. Next month, we're going to look at Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. And in May, we're going to end with Jude 24 and 25. So Romans chapter 16, the very last verses of that book. So verses 25 through 27. It says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone be wise, to God alone, <laughs> let me rephrase, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So God is owed glory because he saves us through his son, Jesus Christ. And this particular doxology serves to remind us of everything that Romans 1 through 16 has taught us about that salvation, the salvation that's found in Christ. And it brings out four attributes of God that are prominent in the book of Romans. His omnipotence, his sovereignty, his immutability, and his wisdom. And it also reminds us that the only way to find salvation and to be assured of our salvation is through the gospel. That is through the good news of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So we're not going to go through this uh, sort of phrase by phrase, but we're just going to look at those 
four attributes of God and then a little bit about um, the gospel. So first up, uh, God is strong to save. He is able to save us. So the very first part of the verse, now to him who is able to establish you, reminds me of the beginning of the epistle, Romans chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And then, of course, flipping over to verses 15 and um, 16. So as much as is in me, Paul writes, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So the power of God is on display in the gospel. He has the power to give life from the dead. That is what most clearly showed his power when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And Romans 1 through 3 um, details how all of humanity is condemned in sin and in under, under God's wrath for that sin. Condemned in sin and condemned to death because of that sin. And Romans 5 teaches us that where sin reigns, death reigns. But God is able to make grace reign where sin reigned. And he is able to make life reign where death reigns. Um, so his power to to make alive what is dead is not insignificant in the gospel. So Romans 5 verses 18 through 21 says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the greatest display of God's power to save. Death has no power to thwart God's power. Satan has no power to thwart God's power. Um, your own sin has no power to thwart God's power to save you. And we know that because Jesus is not in the tomb. Now, if God has the power to give life to the dead, he has the power to keep us and preserve us once we are made alive. The end of Romans 8 reminds us that there is nothing that can separate us from uh, the love of God. So in verses um, 38 through 39, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So having saved us, he will not let anything or anyone take us away from him. His power to save is such that he saves us completely. And that's something that we're going to look at more uh, next month and in May. But the Lord, in addition to having the power to save us, he is able to save us. He is also sovereign to save us. And this comes uh, in the Romans 16 verses. I think it's at the end of 26. Let me just make sure. I am not misspeaking about that. Yes. 
It says, according to the commandment of the everlasting God. Um, that is sort of an odd way to phrase it, and I am very indebted to Pastor Dwight Custis for assuring me I was on the right track <laughs> in my understanding of this verse. Um, it, it states that God establishes us for obedience to the faith according to his command. It's his choice to save. In fact, he commands that we be saved. Um, we get hints of that, his sovereign um his sovereignty to save us in the first eight chapters of Romans. Um, so for example, in Romans three, 20 through 24, he, um, Paul writes, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there's nothing that we do that can cause um, that righteousness of God to be given to us. It's apart from our works. Um in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Again, there it is the Lord acting. It's not anything that we're doing. Uh, 5 8, one of the strongest hints. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, that was his sovereign choice to do that because we were still sinners. Yet he loved us and demonstrated that love by sending Christ. And then we have chapter 8, verse 8. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Um, but the sovereignty of God in choosing to save us apart from our works, apart from anything we might do to earn it, is made most clear in Romans chapter 9. So if it's a, it's hinted at in the first eight chapters of Romans, but in chapter 9 it is explicitly stated, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Well, apart from God's choice to save us, we could not be saved. 
It's his sovereign will to save, to make known the riches of his grace and of his glory by saving those who would otherwise have no hope of salvation. There is nothing that we can do to earn his favor, and there is nothing we can do to lose his favor. Earlier in Romans 9, Paul reminded us that God's choice is entirely independent of anything that we bring to the table. Um, when he recounts how God chose Jacob over Esau before they were even born. So he chooses us only because it pleases him to do so. And having chosen to save us for his particular purpose, he will make sure that his purposes are accomplished. He is sovereign. The Lord is also immutable. He is everlasting. As if God's power to save uh, and his sovereign will to save aren't enough, Romans 16, 25 through 27 also reminds us that God's uh, God is immutable. He is everlasting. He does not change. Who he is in eternity past is who he is now, and it's who he is forever. He keeps his promises to us because there's nothing in him and nothing in his will that would make those promises void. He doesn't make mistakes that have to be corrected, and he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't have to come up with a response to a situation that he hadn't anticipated. He chose us before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians, and having chosen us, we are always his because he doesn't change. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This assumes the answer is no one. No one can be against us to prevail over us because God is for us. The only way that this can be true is if God is everlasting and never changes. And then God is wise to save. God alone is wise. His wisdom is so far above our own that the two can't even be compared to each other. Um, and in fact, Paul had already um, eulogized, if I can use the word that way, eulogized God's wisdom and in specifically praising him because of his wisdom. And that is at the end of Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, where Paul says, after having covered the entire span of salvation from justification to glorification. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Oh, in his wisdom... God made our salvation entirely dependent on him. It is of him. That is, it is from his love of his own choice to save us. It is through him, through his power and his work, that we are saved. And it is to him that we might always be with him, that we might glorify him for all eternity for what he has done for us. God's wisdom um, is not like our wisdom. Our wisdom says that only those who deserve to be saved should be saved. Uh, only those who can contribute in some way to our own personal good or to society's good are worthy of being saved. So we approach God the same way um, to try to earn his favor, to try to show him that he would benefit from having us as his children. But God's wisdom decrees that only those who believe he is the one who saved, who saves will be saved. Only those who take him at his word um, are saved. This way of salvation is wise because it fits God's character, especially his love. And, you know, Pastor Will has talked a lot about that. But salvation by faith in Christ is also wise because faith is the only way that we can have assurance of salvation. If my salvation 
depends on any way in my efforts, I am doomed. <laughs> um, we all are because we can never measure up to God's righteousness. God's righteousness is unchanging without variation, but our righteousness does change. There are times when we are not so righteous, um, where we struggle with sin, and that could be even moment by moment. Um, so if my salvation was dependent on me or your salvation dependent on you, we could never be assured that it was enough. But God, in his wisdom, decreed that our salvation would be established not by our efforts, but by his efforts. So my assurance of salvation is that Jesus died for me, and it's not that I lived for him. So our salvation is established because God is powerful to save, because he is sovereign to save, because he never changes, and because he is wise. But how does he save? He establishes us in our salvation through the gospel and the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 16, 25 through 27 says. I'll read it again. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. The gospel is good news. It's a report of something that has happened. We're not saved by what we do, but by what God has done for us. That's the whole message of Romans. Our justification is the result of Jesus dying as a propitiation for our sin. Our sanctification is the result of our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And our glorification is the result of his glorification. So every aspect of the Christian life is tethered to the cross. The gospel and the preaching of Christ are how we are established in the faith. Colossians 2, 6, and 7, um, some of my favorite verses in scripture. And the ones most helpful for me as I look to become more like Christ. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, which is by faith, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. We're rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus, and we're built up in him as well. The gospel is not just for making us right with God, but for making us more like him as well. So if you struggle with bitterness and unwillingness to forgive with others, you need to be reminded of the cross, of the forgiveness that you have in Christ. Do you struggle with contentment? Scripture reminds you that you've been given all things and can do all things in Christ. Do you struggle with fear and anxiety? Scripture reminds you that nothing can separate you from God's love in Jesus Christ. Do you struggle with loving others? Scripture reminds you that God's love was shown for you on the cross and when you were his enemy. Do you lack assurance of your salvation? Scripture points you back to what Jesus did for you on the cross. Are you lacking in spiritual maturity? Scripture rebukes you for forgetting that you've been um, saved from your sins when Jesus died on the cross. So we never outgrow our need for the gospel. We live because and in light of what Jesus did for us at Calvary. God establishes us in the faith by the gospel, by the preaching of Jesus Christ, which is why we emphasize that so much here at Trinity. So this God, who alone is wise and powerful and sovereign and immutable 
and who establishes us forever in Christ through the preaching of the gospel deserves all of the glory. Salvation is his work from beginning to end. His praise ought to be on our lips and in our hearts, in all that we do and in all that we say, especially to one another together. So I want to end tonight by singing hymn number 667, To God Be the Glory. Elizabeth's going to play it for us. Um, 